This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Wildland Firefighter and the man behind Wild Fit Life, Justin Mahaffey. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his challenging early life, growing up in a Mexican community, the beautiful elements of Hispanic culture, his journey into wildland firefighting, the importance of fitness, mentorship, community, family, homelessness, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. One more side note, I had a technical nightmare at the very end of last year, got a brand new webcam that ended up glitching, it was uh, it was faulty, and uh, kind of corrupted my sound on this particular interview. Luckily, Justin's is perfect, mine is just subpar, it's not bad, but it's not the quality that you're hearing now, for example, so just know it's not your stereo, it's on my end, it was a gremlin that has since been remedied, I've got rid of that equipment now, but was completely unknown until I started editing. So anyway, that being said, I introduce to you Justin Mahaffey. Enjoy. Well, Justin, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. 
Yeah, thank you for having me, man. It's an honor. So where on planet Earth are we finding you your morning, my afternoon? So I'm in Southern California. On the central coast, actually, I'm in Santa Maria. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, kind of like right where the state has got that little elbow. I'm right there. Beautiful. So mm. I would love to, to hear the kind of beginning of your journey, because I know that you were raised in quite a unique environment. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Well, that's kind of an interesting and dynamic topic uh, as far you know as, as it goes back. I was actually born in Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah, all my family um, is from that area. Um, my mom and dad got divorced when I was about five years old. And we moved here to Santa Maria when I was six. So we went across the country and all it was was me, my mom, sister and brother. Other than that, I didn't really know um, any of my family after that. Um, I didn't talk to my dad. I talked to him about three weeks before he died when I was 11 and he died playing Russian roulette. And then uh, my mom was remarried and that didn't last either. So she got divorced to that guy when I was like 12. Um, so I grew up a, a lot of my own at that time at 12 years old. You know, my mom started dating her new boyfriend, who is now her husband. And uh, my brother was in prison back in Florida. And my sister, she was 18 and lived with her boyfriend um, on the other side of the city. And my mom started staying over, um, you know, her her uh, now husband's place a lot. So I, I ended up on my own on the streets a lot. And uh, I got in really involved in that, you know, uh, my sister came back to live with me a couple times, you know, she was a um, real influential character in my life. You know, she would always be there for me and help me take care of me in different ways. You know, she was, we were real close. Uh, me and my brother always stayed real close. We were always riding each other. So that's all we had. And, and me and my mom, you know, like I, I tell that about my mom, but we were always close as well. We went through a rough patch, but life was just happening, you know, and I was on my own. All, but it, all we had was us. I didn't really have cousins and other big, like a big family, like everybody else. That's all it was. And we're still close to this day. Um, my mom at the time, she went from working at Grocery Outlet, which is a little convenience store, you know, and the struggle to um, getting an opportunity to have a better life with her now husband in uh, the Beverly Hills of the part of town where, where we're from, you know, is what, what I call it. But so that became her life. And um, she now has a business taking care of animals. Um, that's always been a real big passion in our lives is, is animals. My mom, um, when she was with my dad, they used to uh, breed animals and, and show dogs and stuff like that. So it's always been a real big thing for my mom. Now she has a business where she takes care of other people's animals. And, and runs her life like that. Um, as far as anything about my dad, I don't really know too much about him or his side of the family. Him and his entire side of the family are all dead. So it's just, like I say, it's us. Um, I'm in touch now with my cousins uh, from my mom's side, which is cool. I didn't, I didn't know them growing up, but uh, that, that's a cool part of life now that I'm connected with them. And social media is awesome for that, you know? 
it's a great way to stay connected like that. But when I was a kid, so in my teens, it was all about survival, uh, figuring things out, growing up real quick, um, always wanting to build my own family. And that comes from the dynamics of my own, obviously. So I always wanted to build my own family. I had kids when I was young. My oldest daughter, uh, when I was 17, my son, just like a year and a half later. Um, so in my teens, I got in a lot of trouble, a lot. Um, and I, I like that part of my life. You know, it is what it is. And it was just everything I knew at the time, but I took a lot from it. You know, um, when I was in boys camp, when I was 16 years old, that's where I got introduced to fire um, and fell in love with it. We worked across, our camp was located across the street from the hotshot crew. And so we would always go work with them. And that's where I really got introduced to it. I loved it. So I got out of the camp. Uh, I kept getting in trouble though. It was still just what it was. Um, but my friend had been doing it for like 10 years fighting fire. And uh, later on down the road, he ended up helping me get into fire. You know, so th that's where I got into that. Um, I actually changed everything that was important to me when I was 23, took custody of my kids. And what mattered to me was providing for them. And every decision that I made was with consideration of them. Right. So I was in construction. Um, that's what I did in my teens, too. When I had jobs, I was either doing construction or um, or kitchen work, you know, just surviving the grind. And um, then I got into fire at 25 and I've been doing that since I'll be 42 in a couple months. Um, we can dive more into different pieces of that. If, if, if you want to, if any questions struck your mind, but that's like the basis of it, you know? Yeah, no, I've got lots, lots of questions. Let's, let's go back to 12 years old. So, you know, as, as you see your mother kind of spending time with her, you know, to be husband and you find yourself, on your own, what were the male models? Excuse me, the the male role models or female role models in your community? Was there a pull towards the street life? Were there other people out there too? Because this is one of the things that's maddening, I think, with the judgmental element of society. Like, oh, all you got to do is make good decisions. Well, it depends on what you're surrounded by. It depends on what your environment is. So, what did you find yourself surrounded by when you were 12 years old? Yeah, so. The area that I lived in, um, the role models around were um, men who survived the struggle through hardship and came out on top and top being what was successful in the world that I saw and was growing up in was just a man about his business and, and staying righteous through it all. And a lot of that, you know, in society standards could be associated as negative, but when you come from the struggle and survival, it's a lot different than just making good decisions and, and things being, oh, you know, you made a bad decision here, you know, when it's about survival and, and doing things that are necessary to elevate in whatever social dynamic you're in. Sometimes that's a lot different than what other people may see it as who didn't grow up necessarily in that environment. So that's a really hard topic, you know, because a lot of people don't understand gangs. They, they, um, I think, have the misconception because of what the news does and stuff. There's a lot of rules involved with, with gangs and gang life that I think are good. 
But a lot of things that get associated to that lifestyle are really the drug addicts that end up robbing people and stealing from random people and doing these things that make everybody look from that world bad when it's really not like that, you know? So I guess the, the male role models that were around me were the ones that I saw that had pride in who and what they were and held their morals and values close, whatever that was. Yeah. Well, because I think it's an important thing to underline. I mean, it's the same with looking down your nose at obesity in America and going, all you got to do is just get up early, go for a run and eat salad. It's like, no, it's it's your environment. Like, what is around you? Are you being led towards health? Are you being led towards ill health? And it's the same with this. If a young boy is feeling vulnerable and he's going to feel like he's part of something in a tribe and that happens to be a gang, you've got to understand the psychology behind that. Now, are there potentially even more nurturing healthy groups that you could be a part of yeah i mean obviously all the members of the you know a gang could ultimately be even better versions of themselves if they were given the tools to to rise up even more but by demonizing anyone who ends up finding themselves in addiction in crime in whatever you know label you want to give it is such a two-dimensional judgmental way of looking at a human being because we don't know what that path looked like up until that point. And if we judge, nothing gets fixed. But if we look at it with compassion and with understanding, then we, I think we can help raise everyone up. Yeah, for sure, man. There, there's like, I did, I used to just be so closed minded. And when I started in fire, I, I gained so much respect for different men from that grew up in different ways because I found things that we related to as far as the grit and wanting more and doing whatever it takes, you know? So there's a lot to that growing up in the area that I grew up in and how I grew up, it's a setup for failure, man. The system is nasty. You know, they, um, I started getting locked up when I was like 12, 13 and they would just, it's they just lock you up for anything. They want you to be in that system. It feels like, you know, them, you just, and then like I stopped going to regular school. So now I'm just in juvenile halls and, and those schools and stuff like that. And that becomes what everything's about. It's normal. You know, they would lock me up. I, I said on the other podcast, well, they locked me up for playing basketball, um, playing handball, just, and like I said, it. I knew I shouldn't have been there. They told us we couldn't be, but that's where I played. I was a kid, you know? And so you just become normal to that. Like my whole life, I thought that I was going to be in and out my whole life. And it was just normal. I didn't care if I was in there or out here. And um, the system, I mean, it's crazy. It's hard to describe on how bad it is with the revolving door of, of what the system is. You know, it's like, it's made up for, it's made to break you down and for failure. Once you're in there, you're in there. And that was one of the biggest things. I still talk to some of my, my old probation officers and things like that to this day. I have one of them who's a client that I coach. And um, I have a respect for them, they have respect for me. And they never thought I would make it out of that. But when I took custody of my kids, that's when I just took a step back and figured out how I could beat that system, how I could get out of it what I needed, the moves I needed to make. And it was hard. It was hard. You know, there was a lot of, because I knew that any little move I made, I have a kind of funny story. I had a, 
he was my public defender at the time. Um, and I had like multiple felony charges. Uh, I think I was like 19 or something. And, um, so he was my public defender. All that happened, whatever years go by. I think I'm like 27 at this time. So I'm in fire. Excuse me. I'm doing good in life. You know, I'm trying to grind. I'm trying to do what I need to do for my kids. And the cops, uh, a, a specific cop that used to mess with me when I was a kid was trying to mess with me again. And um, he came and started giving me tickets because I had a basketball court in the street for my kids. And um, so he ticketed me for that. And then he ticketed me again. And I told him, I'm not going to pay that, man. You're overdoing it. You know, and anyway, I ended up having to go to court for it. And when I went to court, my old public defender was now the judge. And he looks at this, this stuff and he's like, so you went from getting felonies and causing havoc to in here for a basketball court? <laughs> like, Case dismissed. Get out of here, man. Keep doing what you're doing. You know, I thought that was pretty cool. It felt good. But that's you exactly know, but the empathetic you know, it's I that I'm talking about, you know, if the system is broken, they say insanity is doing the same thing again, expecting different results. Like we have to look at, you know, everything from drug prohibition to the fact that some of our prisons are publicly, you know, run, sort of privately run and are profit based. I mean, there's all these elements that are setting certain groups up for failure over and over and over again. Yeah. So I could even dive deeper into that. Please. You know, I just, there's some stuff going on inside, you know, with, um, I can't remember the name of the drug, you know, they give it to people who it's like, it's supposed to help them do something, but it's similar to like heroin, you know? So they're, they're feeding this to these guys that are busted and just keeping them high pretty much. And then when they get out, of course they can't get that anymore. So then they get the heroin and then they get back on that and then they go back inside. So they get back on that other one. It's a, it's a nasty endless cycle, man. And I don't know, there's nothing you can really do about it. You know, the system is what it is, but it's is dirty. It, is it methadone you're talking about? No, but it's something like methadone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think and you watch um, 13th, which is a great documentary and, you know, and you see, how much manufacturing is done in prisons. You know, you see um, how many, just forget color and creed and everything, how many Americans are incarcerated versus the rest of the world per capita. I mean, it's it's so, you know, off. We're just, we're supposed to be so affluent and, you know, be free, quote unquote, yet there are areas of our society that have created so much crime. And this is why I talk about even with the police side. When do you ever hear anyone defending the police and saying, why are our streets so dangerous in the first place? Why is it that I can go to Lisbon, Portugal or Reykjavik, Iceland and not worry about getting shot in a school or on the street? But you go to Philadelphia or Orlando or Miami or everywhere else, you know, and it's like, yeah, don't go there at night. You're not going to walk out again. Why are we not yeah. having this conversation? And that goes way deeper than, you know, being tough on crime, quote unquote. Yeah. Definitely. I think being a, a cop is one of the hardest jobs in the world, man, especially here. Everybody hates you. You know, it's um, one of the kid, one of my kids friends, he's becoming a highway patrol right now. I just told him, I, I was like, man, you don't, you don't get paid enough to have to deal with that. You know, you never know who you're going to pull over. People are crazy. You never know who you're going to pull over. And I just don't think they get paid enough and they don't have enough support all the way around to try to do the right things. You know, it's, I remember some cops that were in the neighborhood when I was a kid who I remember wanted, they wanted to be good, 
good guys. You know, I remember one of them always giving pogs to the kids. That was popular at the time, you know, going around just trying to be good people, but it's a nasty world, man. And they don't have the tools. Yeah. They don't have the tools they need. They don't get paid enough. It's a really negative environment too. You know, think about everybody that you're going to pull over or in any situation that you really deal with is a negative context. So I think it's like a depressing life as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a vicious circle then, you know, they're sleep deprived, they're overworked, they're not supported by departments. And then they have what they interact with on the street a lot of times that's then ultimately going to create worse decisions and more friction. And it's a downward spiral. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely a crazy job. (laughs) Well, I want to hit one more thing and then kind of get through your journey to the fire service. But I heard you talking on another podcast about your, I guess for lack of a better word, ethnic background. You know, when people listening, you sound like you're Hispanic, you you look and dress like you're from a Hispanic culture and you are from a Hispanic culture. But talk, talk to me about your actual family roots and how you were embraced by, you know, the, the culture that you found yourself in California. Yeah, that's actually so it's a big part of, of my life and who I am. You know, I'm Irish. I take pride in that. But my family history is um, I've been trying to learn more about it, actually. Um, but, you know, I grew up in the Mexican culture. And I loved what the family values were around me. You know, there's something about that culture that is different than any other one that I've ever seen. You know, just the way that they embrace each other, the, they're always getting together. And like I said, I had what I have, uh, two siblings and a mom. That was all I knew for family. You know, my wife has got like 78 cousins. You know, she's, she's Mexican, you know, so they, I just, I love what the family values are and, um, being white in that neighborhood came with its challenges, obviously, but I took it as something that empowered me in who I am because a lot, you know, this is a lot of people get their reputations and make their way off who their cousin is or their family that they come from. I didn't have any of that. I had me, you know, so I had to make my own way. Um, And then the love that I was shown from the families that I grew up around really gave me a passion for what the culture is and a pride that I take in being a part of that, you know, Absolutely. Well, what about the the exercise and fitness side? Obviously, we're going to talk about what you're doing today. When you were younger, you mentioned basketball, you mentioned handball. What was your exposure to exercise and fitness back then? So that's kind of a cool story, actually. Uh, I played football, and um, and I was really good at it, man. I got um, youth football, though. So I got MVP every year I played, and the last year I got co-league MVP I got offered a scholarship to um, a local school. That's a really big deal. We're well, not supposed to do that, but they pull people all the time and say, you know, you can come to the school. You want to pay. And I threw all that away, man. Um, not really intentionally, but I knew it was happening. Uh, I had got locked up and I knew I was never going to get to play football again. I didn't go to that school. I uh, That was just became my life. I threw it away. But I loved football. I loved the exercise part of it. I used to love to lead the calisthenics. So when I got into juvenile hall and camps, I'd be leading workouts. Um, when I was in that camp, I, like, I got really into the calisthenic side and they had weights there. So I got really into that. And one of my 
favorite parts of it was always the camaraderie. You know, when you get together and you work out in a group atmosphere. So that was my experience with sports. One of the biggest regrets in my life too. And I felt it in that moment. Uh, I think I was like 14. Uh, I remember being on the field and knowing that I was never going to play football again, you know, but uh, I loved it. I actually stopped watching football, the NFL and stuff for a few years. So I was so bitter. <laughs> <laughs> Understandably so though. You're just kicking yourself. And, you know, again, it was where that road had led you up to that point though. Yeah. Yeah. So what about career aspirations? You know, when you were in the kind of high school age, were you dreaming of becoming anything specific? No, I wasn't, man. That's what's crazy is uh, I always just thought that I would build houses and I love cooking. So I always kept like a little kitchen job. Those are the things I loved. I loved building houses. Uh, I, when I was a kid, like 15 years old, um, I would walk to the tracks where the track homes where they were doing construction, building new, new homes. And I'd be like, hey, man, can I be a laborer? Walk around, clean it up. And then so I'd get a little side job like that. And Scott into it. I just thought that, that that would be my whole life, building houses, and that would be it. You know, and then, like I said, I went to camp, got introduced to fire. It's crazy. I had no idea about wildland fire or what it was until I was in that camp. And we actually got hit by a wildfire in the camp I was in, and they were evacuating us in buses and stuff. So I got really introduced to it, and I always thought it was something that was um, honorable to do and something cool. But when I got out, I just kept kept on with life as normal. And like I said, I had that friend who um, actually he, he's been a role model in my life since I was like seven or eight years old. Uh, Jason Mitchell. I've talked about him before. He's actually the captain on my engine now. And uh, we've always been just good friends. We were hanging out one day and uh, I told him, hey, man, what do I need to do to get on on your crew for a season? Try it out. You know, and he told me, he said, you know, go get your GED, um, go out to the stations, get yourself known. And if you get on the list, I'll vouch for you. And I did everything that he told me to do. I went and I bought the GED. Like I said, I didn't go to high school. I, so, I, so I did high school in two weeks. I bought the GED book. I read it, studied it, set up my appointment, went and took all the tests in one day and got, and got my GED. I started going out to the stations, getting to know the guys, doing what I needed to do, and got in. Now, had you had that kind of passion about other things? or Because the reason why I asked that, I was a straight C student in school. And then obviously, quite a few years later, I entered the fire service and then become a straight A student because it makes sense to me. The medical side, the fire side, it's real world mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. Um, no. Is the answer. <laughs> I... I loved building houses. I always thought it was cool and fun and um, was good at it. I would learn new things, pick them up, become fast at it. Um, but as far as having a passion for it, no. As a matter of fact, when I got into fire, I really started learning how I learn. And it's, it goes with exactly the, with what you just said, how you went from C's to A's. Because I started associating the information I was being taught in a classroom to what I could functionally use in my everyday life to be better at what I want to be good at. And so I started really learning how I learn and, um, and that passion that I had for it. So I started excelling in that, you know? Now, 
for some people listening, obviously you're thinking about the the criminal record that you had. I had a couple of guests on um, Brooke Carrasco who went through the inmate program, ended up getting hired, and she ends up not long after that saving a life on one of the the burns that she was on. And then Dustin, excuse me, uh, Brenda McDonald, um, who was the only survivor of the Prescott 19 fire. He was an addict, opioid addict, before he got hired and got clean. And, and so it seems like the wildland environment is a little bit more forgiving than some of the municipal ones. And, and I've made this observation several times. Imagine how many candidates we lose because they're expecting choir boys to enter this profession. Now, there has to be a line, of course. You know, you can't be a you know, a, a thief recently or, you know, God forbid, anything with children. However, you know, some of the stuff that candidates have done in the past, if it truly is their past, is in one way maybe going to even be an asset as you progress through into this career. So walk me through your desire to enter the fire service and if there were any barriers because of your background. Okay. A couple of things. Actually, Donut, the one you were just talking about. Yeah. He's in my program. He's been in my program for over a year. Oh, excellent. I just saw him literally six weeks ago in Ohio. We were at a conference together. Amazing nice. guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. Um, so I have a, um, a two-sided opinion to what that is. So Wildland Fire is more roughneck, you know? It's more oil field, construction site, you know? Um, and I have a couple felonies. I never expunged my record or anything. It was um, my felonies are for... Uh, sales basically transportation for sales stuff like that with drugs you know and that was just the normal way to make money where i grew up it wasn't a big deal i get it to some people it is but that's just the grind you know um and uh with wildland fire i just put it down man i just put yes i have felonies yes this is what it is the captain at the time gave me an opportunity as a seasonal and then it just never came up when I did my background check and all that. It was, I just didn't lie about it. You know, I put it down and they don't have a rule of not being able to hire you because of that. So it just was never an issue. Now, the flip side that I'm talking about is with municipal. That is and should be harder to get into. Um, you know, you have these kids who are making choices at 18 years old to go to academies, to put in the volunteer hours, to work on their medic, to do all these things that it takes to get into the municipal side. So with all these candidates being able to be chosen from, if I'm the hiring official, I'm not gonna hire some 25 year old felon over some 18 year old kid who's putting in the work, you know, and then has a clean record. So I get it, you know, it's, it's harder to get into. Now, with that being said, there is, like you said, um, a lot of value that can be finding someone who's gone through struggle and they might have a, a great work ethic and a desire to, to be good at what they're doing, especially because they can understand what the hardship is. So there's, there is positives to it, but it's harder to get into the municipal because of that. I had this 18 year old kid who was on my, uh, my engine. He's from Fresno. He was staying over here with me. I rented him a room and he was just doing everything. He would be doing his classwork on, on, at night on the computer. And, and that's where I kind of got that impression. Like, man, this kid is doing the work. So there's less people 
to choose from in wildland because nobody really wants to do it for a career. It's hard, dirty work, right? So, and then with municipal, you have all these applicants to choose from. So it's going to be harder to get in because those kids that are 18, 19, 20, you know, that have been doing the work are going to get it. And rightfully so. Yeah, no, and I agree completely. If, if someone is a better candidate, they're a better candidate. It's that simple. But, yeah. you know, the other side of the equation is an 18-year-old kid, you know, may have some trials and tribulations in their past that's going to set them up for success in the fire service. Or they could be yeah. purely academic and actually, you know, not do well in this profession. We don't know until we obviously give them an opportunity. But to discount people because of their background, they may also be. I mean, the, the Justin, you know, the 25-year-old Justin was worthy of a position, you know. So I think, again, that compassion that we talked about earlier, um, if someone grew up in a system that was setting them up for failure, should that basically, uh, should that follow them the rest of their life? Should that stop them from getting multiple roles? Or as long as it wasn't something too heinous, you know, is there a more altruistic way of looking at it where we can be open-minded in the professions and say, okay, you know, there has to be a period of, uh, you know, time between last offense and this and, and, uh, and have proven that you have changed and overcome that. But to just immediately discount that, which happened on my very first, uh, <laughs> my very first application in the fire service, mm. I was honest about a drug I tried in, in Japan years uh, prior and they literally screwed it up and threw it in my face. I'm yeah. like, Oh, okay. So you have to lie to be a firefighter. Got it. And then, uh, then I worked for 14 years. <laughs> I mean, it's fucking ridiculous. That's true. So, you know, it, especially now as that drug is being used as a very, very effective mental health drug, MDMA, mm. now we're using it to help firefighters, you know. So it, it's, it's where is that line between some mistakes that were overcome and obviously, you know, the, the, the crimes that you can't overlook and put someone in uniform for? Exactly. I agree with you 100%. And, you know, if like you're referring back to the 18-year-old kid who maybe came from struggle, you know, I would, to me, might be a better looking applicant if he's hasn't had that support growing up and and the guidance to do what he wants to do and he's the one that's putting in the work and doing the extra that would be something more for me that i would look at you know absolutely yeah there's a lot of sides to it and i definitely think that we should not judge people i think there is some crimes that uh should definitely rule people out for really anything in life you know but i definitely agree with you yeah absolutely well you talked about doing calisthenics in in football and those kind of areas as you enter the wildland fire service how was your fitness for the pack test and, and the basic training that you had and how did that carry you through the rest of your career so this is funny um i when i got into fire the pack test was fine but the uh the hiking. So it's funny. I told my, my friend, I told him, oh, I'll be good, man. I lift all the time. I can squat this much weight. I can do this and that. When I got went on my first hike, man, I got my ass kicked. I had no idea what I was getting into when I put that gear on and went up the hill. They beat me up the hill by probably 15, 20 minutes. When I got up there to the top, I was just happy I made it to the top. And they're like, nah, man, you got to go a lot faster than that. And so, um, you know, my first season or two, I was working on getting better at that, changing the dynamics of how I work out. A lot of that I can associate back to how, what my workout techniques are now and the plans that I make for overall just functional strength. But I went from being so 
when I went to the Hell Attack crew, these guys were fast. Skinny little guys, 6'3", 150 pounds. You know, I'm 5'9", 5'10", about uh, 230 at the time. You know, I just love lifting heavy. That was my get down. So now I'm trying to keep up with these guys. So I'm just on a tool. But I decided that season, I told my soup, I told him I want to be on a salt team. You know, um, what do I need to do? He said, well, first of all, you need to go from the back of the hikes to the front of them. You need to carry more weight and uh, this and that, right? So I spent all winter just fucking grinding. I mean, I'm talking about I'd go to the dunes and I would bear crawl and hike up and just run as fast as I could up the sand dunes. I would hike and run almost every day. Um, fire season comes back again. Now I'm in the front of the hike. You know, um, now I get on the saw team. Now I spend my season doing that. I love it. I fall in love with it um, even more. And then I developed my style of working out because I didn't want to cut out lifting weights. I've been doing it my whole life and I love it. A lot of guys in fire, especially wildland, they don't lift. You know, it's a lot of just running and hiking. You got you to gotta have that endurance and you got to just be able to carry the weight, right? So I mixed it up and um, I came up with, you know, I started incorporating my burpees into weightlifting, um, a lot of circuit training, a lot of running and hiking and boxing. And so now I've created this style that benefits what I enjoy as far as weightlifting, power stuff, and then also incorporated that cardio side of it that I keep on point with it. So that's kind of like what wild fit life is, is like this whole little mixture of, of all that. And when I see a lot of your videos, obviously the, the first image that comes back is, you know, sadly prisoners, Hispanic usually um, in prison, but still working out ferociously, even if they're in a tiny, tiny little cell. Do you know what the kind of history is? I mean, when I think of burpee, I think of that, and then I think of CrossFit, which is the one that really brought it to, to most of us. Is there a kind of origin story for that group of people, whether in prison or outside, using that kind of exercise methodology? A lack of space. It's simple. Lack of space and a lack of equipment. You got you to, gotta, you know, a little space to be in. When you're in that environment, taking care of yourself becomes a whole different thing, you know, you, um, it's all you have. So that's why you see people, you get people reading books, self-care becomes a huge thing. You got this little space. So you're going to try to work out in any way you can just from push-ups to air squats. Okay. Start throwing in burpees. Burpees was actually invented by um, a man with the last name of Burpee back in the days in the military. Are you familiar with that? Um, I'm not totally familiar with the origin story now. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a long one, but simple, just a guy with the last name of Burpee. Um, he came up with the movement, you know, and then it just gets in, in the military and in institutions, a lot of the mindsets, the same it's structure, discipline and self-care, right. And pride for what's important to you and what you're about. So in the, in, in there, um, that's what, that's what they do. You know, you got a little space, so you do as much work as you can in one space and then staying strong and ready for anything to come your way is of utmost importance. So, yeah, I, when, when COVID hit and all the gyms were closed down, which again, that's an entire other conversation that shut down everything that makes people healthy when you've got a health scare. Um, 
But, you know, that's what I always popped in my mind was, well, if someone can be incarcerated and still work out with no equipment and, a you know, whatever it is, six by six cell, then none of us have an excuse not to work out. Yeah, thousand percent. And, you know, when I, so I have um, two people who are you know, the families I've talked about before in previous podcasts, but are very close to me, like brothers. One of them right now is in the Corcoran shoe and one of them's in Pelican Bay. And I just did like, um, I'm not trying to come out with a podcast, but we just did this thing. We called it, uh, the window and he was talking and he's in Pelican Bay. So we did it, um, where we did like a FaceTime and I recorded it and it was all positive. It was just about mindset, mental fortitude, stuff like that. Right. And he was talking about in his dynamic, sometimes he gets, we're, to break it down simply almost feels helpless. Like he can't help those people around him, you know, his loved ones that are out here or he gets stuck in a, in a, in a thought pattern that's negative or whatever it is. He'll just start doing burpees, get that blood flowing, get that oxygen, you know, to your brain. Um, and it helps put you in a different state of mind, which can sometimes help you come and find those answers that you were looking for. You know, it's powerful to get moving and take care of yourself. So when all you have, is you then you start taking care of yourself look at now people out here man they everybody's okay like with just enjoying a temporary fast comfort and and saying oh i'll deal with the consequences later i'm not going to not have my donut and i'm not going to not have my monster every day or whatever it is it's silly you know until the doctor tells you hey you need to start focusing on some self-care or you're gonna you're gonna die you know, so all of that. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a powerful perspective and it's, and it's true. I mean, it really is. Um, as we progress through your, your career in Wildland, what was some of the, the kind of career fires that you had? Um, that's a hard one. I've been on a lot, a lot of fires, um, over a hundred in my career and where I'm from, a lot of them are big ones, you know? We started getting, uh, is that what we're talking about? Just like big, you know, big campaign fires. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Any, anything that really kind of, you know, maybe shook you a little bit more than mm-hmm. the other ones. Um, well, you know, the, there was, I would say most recently, and I was talking about on the last podcast is what the fires are getting big, you know, in 2008, 2009 here on my forest, we had fires over a hundred thousand acres. And after that it started becoming normal, you know, before that, 30,000 acres, 50,000 acres was considered a huge fire. Now that's just, just normal, you know? And I would say what shakes me about it now to this day is the fact that as an agency, we're imploding and we're losing all our qualified leaders that are decision makers to other agencies. So now we're put in situations where Sometimes these people who get promoted into positions that they shouldn't be in just off default are now in that. So we have to really look at things in a whole different perspective and make decisions based on that isolated down to just our crew. You know, we don't have the, uh, the personnel to get in front of fire and put fire on the ground and cut it off and fight fire like we normally would. So we don't have the personnel. So now the fire is getting the upper hand on us because we have to let it do its thing before we can do our thing. It's, it's all that, you know, um, I've been on fires where I've been, I've been cut off by fire, had to run from fire. 
uh, you know, got a lot of good learning experiences like that. When to be aggressive, when not to be aggressive. I've never had to deploy. Um, my coworker at my station, he did um, in this fire that on the uh, the Monterey fire blew up on him. The whole station got burned down. They lost engines, dozers, and they all had to deploy. Uh, you know, and so I guess some what you really learn from that is when Mother Nature takes its course. You really can't beat that. But anything and everything that we can do to avoid those situations is crucial. You know, once I started becoming a leader and having to make those decisions, I noticed I got a little more cautious than I was before. I used to be uh, like, let's just go. Let's go. Let's go. Um, and then when I started being the one that had to make the decisions that affected these guys' lives, I'm like, well, hold on. Let me really analyze this situation before we just put fire on the ground or do the next thing, you know? So it's hard to say. I guess I don't have any specific incident that melts into who I am. It's all of it combined. You know, they're all slides um, and they're all tools that I use to this day and how I fight fire and, and continue to, to grow in what it is, especially as times change. Well, one thing I've heard over and over again from Brendan, from um, Ben Strawn, from Jason Ramos is that the fires are just getting worse. Um, some of them talk about global warming and they're seeing everything getting drier and hotter and the season not being a season anymore, but being almost year round. Um, other ones talk about opposition to prescribed burns. So through your eyes, what are some of the factors that are contributing to such large fires these days? Well, you know, they have this thing where um, you can't burn because the, the seagulls are close, you know, whatever it is, right? And that's a factor because we need to be putting more fire on the ground in the winter and getting rid of these fuels. But with all this stuff going on, you just can't. All the rules and regulations, we can't. Um, you try to do work, but we don't have the workforce to go out there and actually be doing the, the fuels work all the time that needs to be done. And then, like I said, you can't burn when you need to. So we start getting these rains like right now it's just putting more grass on enough didn't burn last year. So all you now have now is more, more, um, more wick to get to that brush, you know, with all that grass. So it's just, and then people put their homes in places they shouldn't be. They don't do the, um, the clearance that they should. People are negligent, dragging chains. I mean, it's just so many factors, you know. I'm not too um, informed on the whole climate change and all that. I don't know. But um, I do know that it's hot and dry all year long. You know, we get two inches of rain, and that's cool for a little bit. But it'll pick right back up. You know, we get crazy winds here in Southern California all the time. So that just dries things out fast, you know. So we're having – we check our fuels twice, twice a month. And, you know, it changes pretty rapidly, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's just an important conversation. You can label it however you want, global warming or, you know, pink cupcake day, whatever you want to call it. But the reality is we are asking our wildland firefighters to do more with less over and over again. Every year. And it was funny, we talked earlier about, you know, municipal having a lot of candidates. They don't anymore. Really? And I was literally reminiscing with people when I got hired in Anaheim, because I worked Anaheim for a few years. Um, I tested against a thousand candidates that were all certified. It wasn't non-cert. It was a thousand certified firefighter, paramedics, and/or EMTs with you know ambulance experience. A lot of them came from the wildland community. So we're talking about stacked resumes, thousands of them for thirty jobs. 
And so now it's not the case. Anaheim may still be doing well. They're a very well-respected department, but a lot of departments are really hurting. And I think it's the same in Wildland where people are now able in 2023 to research, you know, what does the role of a Wildland firefighter look like? And you'll see, you know, the pack test and the camaraderie and only the brave. Well, only the brave is a bad example because, you know, so many people died. But, you know, the Still a good the, the glory side, the things that we're all proud of, the things that we love about the profession. But in that Google search will also come up firefighter suicide, addiction, homelessness, all these things that, you know, I want to get into in a second with you. Yeah. But the other side and then the pay and then the mandatory overtime, you know. And so now people are able to see the entire picture, you know, good and bad. And I think that now with that, we've, we've really exposed how poorly a lot of these agencies support their men and women. And therefore, there's not as much of a demand because people are going, that looks a bit shit. I'm not going to do that. You know, so I think that we are really at a pivotal point in the municipal and the wildland fire service where if people don't start, start actually bolstering these professions and supporting them and giving them more staffing so we can give them more time off and rest and recovery, we're not going to have firefighters anymore. Yep. And, you know, a lot of a lot of cities will, will suffer what Paradise endured, you know, a few years ago because there just simply won't be, as you said, prescribed burns and the proactive side or the ability to be reactive and protect communities. Yeah, thousand percent. And uh, I got an example for you. My stepkid, he's 24. He'll be 24 in a couple of weeks. He's started expressing interest in what I do. And he wants to do something honorable, you know, and my opinion, his opinion as well. The two most honorable things you can do military or be a firefighter. That's my opinion. And he agrees with it. So he started asking me, what can he do? So he's 24. He works in solar panels right now and he makes 29 bucks an hour. Right. So I told him, well, if you get on the engine or the hand crew, you're going to maybe start at like 1550 an hour. When he was like, well, I can't live off that. You know, it's a thing. And how you make your money in wildlands overtime. So hopefully you get on a, in an area where there's a lot of coverage needed or, you know, you're on a crew or where it's nonstop or a helicopter where there's less resources. So you get more overtime. But if they don't pay us right, we're not going to be able to get these new kids in. When you can go work at In-N-Out or you can go work at, you know, McDonald's and you can make more than you can in the backseat of an engine – on a fire crew, you know, come on, it's ridiculous. And I'm actually the union rep on my forest. I went to Washington DC fighting for it. Um, I actually got invited to the white house, went into the West wing. That was awesome experience. Who would have ever thought I'd been there? Huh? Um, <laughs> that was crazy. And then, you know, we went into Congress and talked to them and I just, I really don't understand the holdup on the buy-in to pay people. Right. You know, it's crazy to me. And then, so unless they fix that, and then like you say, all the different dynamics that come with it, it's, yeah, we're going to implode completely. Well, talk to me about Tim Hart and how that took you to D.C. So the Tim Hart, I think, is going to be hard to pass because there's a lot of things wrong with the Forest Service, right? And Tim Hart in that whole little bill kind of fixes probably too much. You know, it would make too many things make sense. So you're going to get a lot of pushback. I hope it goes through. Um, we have some guys who are in Washington daily pushing for it, get, trying to get, you know, the signatures they need, trying to uh, talk to the right people. But it's like a fix-all. 
And I think with the, the way our government works is we don't fix all. So it's a hard one. And then it's hard to get those bills passed and other things because you put them in all these other different bills that have too much stuff in it. You know, I think it'd be nice to have somebody just sit back and do the right thing and be like, look at all this stuff needs to be fixed. People are dying and uh, more people are going to die if we don't fix it. But it's, it's a hard sell, you know, because for some reason the money is the issue, which it shouldn't be. When I talked to um, the, uh, the congressman about the issues and about what's going on, they have no idea what I'm talking about. And I don't know if that's just what they're acting like or if they're really that far separated from what the real issues are. You know, it's, it's one of the two. And it's, it was kind of disheartening for me to be like, you have no idea what I'm talking about. What do you mean? You know, you are a representative. So the, the separation is, is huge. As far as Tim Hart goes, um, you know, I don't really know too much of his whole story uh, to speak on but that uh, he was a firefighter that passed and, and they put the, the bill together in his name. I believe his wife was pushing a lot of the, the issues with it and, and it took off and grew. Well, it sounded like he was a smoke jumper and died in a, a hard land. And again, every time I think of a line of duty death, especially when it's someone doing something that they would have been good at doing, you know, you're not going to be a smoke jumper and not know how to land you know, with a parachute, for example. So that immediately then sends me into thinking, okay, what did the weeks prior look like? You know, did he get rest and recovery or was he on back-to-back, -back, you know, deployments? And did that factor into a lack of judgment in his death? Yeah, I imagine that, that is something that really does need to be looked at because those are huge issues now, still. the And as, as the resources dwindle down to even less, you know, there's going to be less rest and recovery. And people just pushing and pushing the crews are as as there's less hotshot crews, those hotshot crews are gonna there's gonna be more demand for them to be out even more. So it's just leading to the next thing. And it, it, the, the simple fix is the pay. All the other stuff that's in the bill that needs to be fixed, um, you know, with health stuff, the support, all that's important. But without the pay, we're not gonna get the people in the roles that need to be filled to make all that stuff matter. So they just need to be like, look, all right, let's pay these people more. This now we can have more people employed and then get the proper rest and recovery between assignments that's necessary. So it all, I think it all falls back on the money. It does, yeah. And this is what um, is maddening in the municipal side because, I mean, their work week is insane. You know, a lot of America, they work 56 and they're understaffed. So now it's 80 hours in a week. You know, and this is, you know, on and off, maybe every other week they're working that. And we wonder why they're falling apart, why we're losing them physically and mentally. And people say, oh, well, if we can't get people now, how are we supposed to fill the seats? And it's exactly what you said. You fucking change things so people want to be a firefighter again. Yeah. It's that simple. You know, if you told someone, hey, you're going to be a coal miner and I'm going to, you know, pay you $5 an hour, what would you say? You know, you go to a, an accounting job and they say, right, every third day you have to stay at the office all night and it's $10 an hour, you'd be like, yeah, you can uh, eat a bag of dicks. I'm not doing that. And then they're so fucking surprised when that happens in the fire service. And it's like, oh, but you love the job, don't you? Yes. But that doesn't bring you home when it's your child's birthday party, you know, or 
make sure that you are there the, that day so you can take your wife out on that date that you promised her. You know, we have lives outside our profession too, and we love what we do, but you can't ask people to do more with less because you end up in 2023 where you're about to lose the entire ability to, you know, to, to be, to deliver a fire service anymore. So we they have to have a, a brave decision. And the irony is the money that cities and counties and, you know, the forestry department loses from their people breaking, you could put that money into people and you'd actually save money because they wouldn't break and you'd retain that experience and you wouldn't lose them to the surrounding cities. That's been ridiculous for over a decade, man. We'll send these people to academies. What is it? I think it's like 6,000 a pop, you know, to go to wherever you're going for the academy for 30 days for wildland and get them all this experience. As soon as they're done with their apprenticeship, gone to Cal Fire or to a county or something like and And so you just wasted all that money. Why just take better care of us and people will stay. Just exactly what you're saying. It's insane because I'm sure you could have, this, you know, the same conversation with anybody. It's like the simple fixes. Why can't we just fix it? It's, who's in charge? You know, it's crazy. And then at the local level, you know, you get, now we're getting people who shouldn't be in those positions, in those positions. So, you know, they're just there for maybe their high three, you know, before they retire. So they come in with these grandiose ideas and never pull the trigger on anything and really just make things worse. It's a vicious cycle, man. It really is. It's upsetting because I'm passionate about my job. I love wildland fire. I just had a situation happen to me where I thought about leaving. I got done pretty dirty. Um, for about a year and three months, I was dealing with this situation where I had these two people make up stuff about me and um, consider me a threat and all this. And after 15 months, they found out that, that these were lies and untrue. But in that time, I lost out on $120,000 because I was restricted from going to assignments or anything. Um, and there's no fixing that. Now I'm just in this, in a hole. And, uh, and what I ended up getting in trouble for, and this is what's funny, is you've seen my Instagram, right? It's not about being a firefighter. It's about working out wherever you can, anywhere. And a, being a firefighter is a part of who I am. So sometimes I'll show the workouts we do on break. Or we're going to look at, we got 30 minutes. Let's knock out 500 pushups. I'll share that stuff. It's just motivational workout wherever you can, whenever you can. I ended up getting in trouble because out of six posts out of over 2000, they were able to see the forest service logo in the background. So they said that the forest service that could insinuate that the forest service um, promotes my business. So I got in trouble for that. And what's crazy is I literally through my social media, try to promote being a firefighter to these kids who message me and they're like, Hey man, I really want to do what you're doing. How do I get involved? And I'll direct them. I've got people on, uh, on hotshot crews, engines, type two crews all over California. These kids, I help them tell them what to do. And now I'm not supposed to do that. And that, and that's it, just trying to bring people in, you know, that come kind of from the world that I do and, and that could fill the seats. Yeah. There's there's some lunacy out there. There really is, you know. I mean, and there's a fragile egos as well. Sometimes it's the person, it's the individual. I mean, I've <laughs> I've tried to try to push change in a lot of the places that I've worked, you know, and, and I've worked in places where that wasn't very hard at all because it was a great environment like Anaheim, and I've worked for some places where 
they didn't want to hear it. Full stop. Sit down. Shut up. You're making us look bad. You know, and so many fragile egos there. So, but this is what I hear from a lot of the really good firefighters around the country is their biggest stress isn't that horrendous car wreck they went to. It's the environment that they're working and they're trying to be, you know, motivated, fired up firefighters and find new training and spread fitness and all those things. And, and their biggest resistance is their own people. Thousand percent. You know, that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, we're talking about the the stress side of it. And I, you had brought up like suicide and, and those things. Um, one of the, one of the reasons and where I started heading with my social media when I started it was that camaraderie that we build, right? When we work out together during the fire season, we're pushing, we're grinding, you create these bonds, right? And that's your life for those six, seven months. But then these people get laid off the seasonals or even permanents, you know, use or lose, whatever it is, you're off your home. So now all of a sudden you're in these environments that are um, different and sometimes depressing, especially when you, whatever situation you're in. But with my social media, it's like, look, you can still, we can still work out together. We can stay connected all year long and support the grind. And I think that's one of the best parts of what Instagram or TikTok or Facebook, any of that stuff is, is that you can stay connected with like-minded people and kind of maybe you never know who you're going to help, who's in a bad spot where maybe they see something positive or you invite them to do a Zoom workout and it changes their perspective or their day or wherever, wherever they're at. You can, it's one of my favorite things about social media and it's a real thing that when these people who dedicate like on a, on a crew for six, seven months, and then they go home and start dealing with these real issues and they feel separated from maybe their spouse or their other loved ones, whatever it is, and start drinking and get just become in this depressing state. But, you know, that's why I think it's powerful to create these, these uh, outlets like social media to keep people connected and support each other all year long. I think that's something that we don't really understand being in the municipal fire service is that seasonal element of the wildland fire service. And I think that the deadliest catch, the the crab fishing show from years ago kind of gave an insight into that. These men, you could see that shared suffering, that community, obviously they would bang heads sometimes that we all do, but overall they were this tight knit tribe and then the season stops and they all walk out the door and, you know, some go home to a healthy, you know, community and environment and they do okay but some, you know, clearly they spiral downward again. So what are you seeing through your own eyes of, of the, the negative side? You've got all the positivity of when we're on the job, when, you know, when they're wearing the uniform and out there working together and suffering together and bonding. But that other side, when, when they're, you know, they walk out the door for the last time until the following year. You see a lot of stuff, man. We've had uh, suicide here locally on our forest, you know, most recently, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to get too into it, but we'll call it suicide. He, yeah, he didn't, and he was just in a bad spot. You know, he um, was, I actually think he was close to retirement and thinking the end was coming, you know, whatever it was, but he was losing what this was and that was all his life is, you know, but you got these kids, right? A lot of young men who are living in their trucks because they can't afford to be, to have a residence wherever they're stationed at. So a lot of them sleep in their trucks on the property or, get these little trailers, rent a room or whatever. So when the fire season ends, they have literally nothing, maybe some money they stacked up, you know? So then they go and they don't have that camaraderie anymore. 
I think drinking becomes a real big problem because that's the most socially accepted bullshit in the world, you know? So, you know, they dive into that and who knows what, you know, if some of these guys are gone for months at a time, you know, home, go for assignment, come home for two days, go to an assignment. So then what? You're going to lose your wife unless she's a good girl and you're actually decent to her, you know, and keep your chick. But a lot of time, you know, they lose their, their, their wives. They now they're on their own. So fire season's over, no more support drinking. Drinking is the biggest thing I see and you get lost in it. So, you know, I don't really know what the, I think hiring people on more full time, like I'm, I've been permanent and 26 and 0 since I started. So I haven't, I had a, you know, I go to work every day. So I, that never ends for me, but seeing that and, and what it does to people, it's, it's a sad thing, man. And so trying to just create an environment to support them in some way is all we can really do. So as you touched on before, you built this community while fit life. Um, talk to me about the genesis of that and then how it's grown to where we are today. So the way it originally started was I was on uh, cause I run a, well, me and Jason, who I was talking to you about a bit ago, we run an engine and we run a hand crew. So we go back and forth running those two things. Right. So I was on a fire with this hand crew. Um, I was actually off social media just because uh, I'm real big on keeping anything negative out of my life, you know? So at that time I was just familiar with Facebook and you see your friends and all their bullshit. So I'm like, I don't even want to look at it anymore, you know? Anyway, so now I'm on this fire. It's like 103, I think 104 that day. And I tell this guy, Rob, I'm like, Hey, we got to go up to this hella spot. We'll get up there. Just you come with me. So he goes with me. We end up getting up to the top like a 45 minute plus hike. Like I said, it was hot. And when we get up there, we have to wait two hours for the helicopter. So I tell him, hey, do a thousand pushups with me in an hour. And he was like, well, all right. So we do it. And in the midst of doing it, he tells me, man, these all these workouts that you come up with like this, you should put them on social media. Other people could do them for follow alongs and stuff like that. And he's a younger guy, right? So he started telling me about Instagram and all this. I'm like, all right, let's check it out. So that's how it started. Then I started it, started sharing workouts. And then I started seeing the reach that I could have with it. One of the most powerful impacts that I thought I could have was on my kids who were at that time starting to become um, young adults themselves. And if you have kids, do you? Yes. Yeah. I have a, my biological son and then my bonus boy, my stepson. How old? Uh, 16 and 22. Okay. So then you kind of know. They start thinking that they know what's up and what you say starts becoming pretty <laughs> irrelevant, right? Because they got life figured out and they're going to create their own path. So one of the things that I saw is that I could make these posts, these powerful, um, share these thoughts that I'm having, uh, things that I found powerful, share my relentless grind every day. And no matter what my kids, if I were to die tomorrow, would be able to look at that and I could impact their lives in a positive way through that. So I, that was one of the reasons I kept pushing it, you know, and then the camaraderie that I was creating with other people from all over the world that was started tagging me in their workouts. Um, and then it just kept growing. You know, and I think a lot of it has to do with it's not flashy. I don't have a lot of money. I'm just in the garage or I'm, you know, at work or I'm somewhere. And I'm just let's just just fucking do more. That's it. Just do more. You know, and it's some the whole black and white theme is intentional. It's for the simplicity of what it is. You know, 
You don't need all this flashy colors, all this flashy shit. Just black and white, simple, just fucking grind. So it's it's grown in people that associate to that. And I think a lot of people associate with me because I'm just like you. You know, let's just fucking go. And that's it. So. Now, was your wife always working out with you or did she kind of get pulled in? <laughs> so my wife, she's a different story, man. Um, she was the type of girl who hated running in school. If they wanted her to do a mile at PE, she would walk that shit. She never liked working out. She didn't like to sweat. You know, she's a real pretty girl. Into the, She's feminine. Um, so she watched me work out in the garage. Six years, she was just watching me. Had to be that long. Yeah. And then uh, I would tell her, hey, you want to work out with me? She's like, no. Well, finally she did. She was like, oh, I'll try it out. And then, um, man, she started, got into it. It's obviously that little roller coaster at first, but then she just got committed and now she can't take a day off. And it's been years. Having that is a whole different dynamic. And actually with my program, I, because of what that is with me and my wife, I offer a two for one, you know, couples, uh, if you and your girl, whatever, two for one for the price, because that's what I want to push because the dynamics that it's created with me and my wife falls back on the camaraderie that we were talking about, right? That we find in the, in the fire service or with our workouts, whatever it is, right? Me and her have that, which created a whole different dynamic in our relationship. We push each other. We support each other. Um, the other day, this is, a good story to kind of support what I'm talking about with her. I'm not even the one who pushed this. We were in the garage doing a circuit, me, her, and my coworker. And I had my clients on zoom. Um, the power went out. There was a car accident right down the street. Someone hit the pole. So before I can even say anything, I'm thinking, man, shit, you know, all the power's out. She goes, let's get some candles lit and finish this shit. <laughs> like I said, I'm not even the one who said it. Me and Troy looked at her and we're like, Fuck, all right, let's go. <laughs> and so we finished the workout in candlelight. It was pretty cool. And it's Beautiful. awesome to see. Yeah, it's awesome to see her grow in her self-confidence. She has a um, she fought anxiety real bad. One of our kids almost uh almost died from an illness and they couldn't figure out what it was and it it fucked her up, man. She started becoming fearful of the unknown and it really created an anxiety that was that was uh really just it took control of her right so the working out watching it literally help her in that aspect of who she is is powerful you know there's so much to it you know people just think oh i don't want my life to be about working out but fuck man when you start making self-care the priority of who you are it affects so many other things about you i say it all the time every little move that you make you teach yourself something about who you are you know, and if you're demanding more of yourself in this aspect of your life, then it's going to affect who you are over here. And there's actual change that happens when you get up. If you sit there on the couch and you're just stuck in this negative train of thought, and if you get up and get on the treadmill or go walk around the block, there's an actual reaction. You know, you're changing the blood flow. You're getting more oxygen to your brain and will effectively change the way that you're thinking about things. And, and possibly and hopefully get you into a better place. 100%. It's interesting what you were saying about the boys. When uh, my bonus boy, my stepson, when I met him, he was doing karate. 
and he ended up doing that for about a year. Um, he kind of basically got tired of it, and, and then the, the sensei of that particular school revealed who he really was, and was not not a good human being at all. So we were glad he was out. Then uh, got him into fencing for a little bit. He, he kind of found a, a passion for that, and then he transitioned out. We always said, look, we don't mind you know what you do as long as you do something. And so he came to the CrossFit gym where I coach um, and would sit there, you know, playing with his phone. And then one day he goes to my wife. I think I want to try it. And then he was, he was off. That was it. Now, now these days he lifts weights. He's more of a kind of bodybuilder, not, not, you know, juicing or anything, but that's his kind of exercise that he loves. But it's amazing how, if you immerse them into that environment, they find themselves pulled in and you're walking the walk. You yourself are doing it. That inspires your kids to follow it as well. Thousand percent. It's funny. My eight year old, uh, you probably seen her on videos and stuff. She's been working out with me since she was small, but I never make her work out. I always invite her or, you know, I got her on the camera now. Sometimes I'm teaching her to be a little camera girl, <laughs> um, the GoPro. It's funny. It's cute. But um, she's now recently because she does walk with us no less than a mile after dinner every night. That's our, our minimum. Right. But she started really just taking it to another level. I think it was on Saturday. Um, she comes out and she's like, oh, I just did 100 jumping jacks and some core in my room. She bought herself with her Christmas money a little uh, Hello Kitty uh, yoga mat. And uh, she goes, I'm going to go do 100 burpees. I'm like, all right. She went and did 100 burpees on her own. Amazing. She's just into it. Yes, yeah, so it's just she's seeing and she's starting to feel results, you know, so she's just into it, you know, and I, it's such a powerful thing to have a part of who you are. So I think it's a big deal for all of us as leaders, parents, um, if you, anybody that you love, you know, you can't tell them shit if you're not leading by example. So set the tone, you know? Absolutely. Do as I say, not as I do does not work in parenting. Yeah. You can't say shit. Even with my kids now, the older ones, I don't tell them anything anymore right now. I know that they're figuring out their own path. I'll have talks with them, but I know that they got to figure things out for themselves. But what I continue to do every day is set the example of what I think is important every day, the way I act to my wife the way I act to them um, and then just the relentless drive for more in every aspect of who I am. Now you talked about there was a, there was some ups and downs before you and your wife kind of really were cohesive working out together. At the same time when I was coaching, my wife started CrossFit as well. And I would tell her a cue and she would just be totally ignore me and then she'd go to the other coach and be like steve can you show me how to do this and he would tell her the exact same fucking thing and she'd yeah. be like oh my god that's amazing thank you so much so we walked together but i never really had a lot of success you know coaching her so how did you navigate that element when you were you know the expert in that particular field and you were trying to bridge that gap without you know uh rocking the boat too much in the marriage so i do now have that with her where i can i can coach her i try to teach her things that I know to help her be one of my assistant coaches on my team. Right. A lot of girls like to talk to her, but um, you have to understand the dynamic of it. I know that she doesn't want to feel like I'm superior to her and teaching her this thing. She wants to be on her own, just like anybody else. Right. So what I did is I was connected with Kim um, who's now a coach on my team at the time. And I hired her, to be my wife's coach, just to teach her the basics, 
some things about the nutrition side and all those things. And, and it worked out great. My wife started learning her own way of doing things separate from what I do. And, um, and she got more comfortable and this is my program. So she started, you know, taking pride in that and then started really being able to understand and make sense of the things that I was doing. So then jump more on board with, oh, okay, yeah, let's do that. And so now, now we have that, but it was definitely a, a process that I had to be mindful of. I had to realize, look, she doesn't want me to be standing over her. Like I'm some, like I'm her coach, you know? She's my equal, so she doesn't want to feel anything less than that from me. So that's yeah. where hiring the outside source came in handy. Brilliant. Sage advice. Thank you. Yeah, the, the yeah. other coach ended up being her main coach. So it's kind of the same thing. But uh, but yeah, then she quit CrossFit. So. Oh, shit. <laughs> but that was, to be fair, that was she got busy. She's in med school now. So it's kind of one of those oh. things where she had to kind of step back a little bit. Um, well, speaking of the program, then for people listening, talk to talk to them about all the things that you offer and where they can find it. So you can find everything on my one website, wildfitlife805.com. Right there, we have my one-on-one coaching, and what comes with the one-on-one coaching is a lot, and I keep the price low. So, and the idea of that is offer a better product for a lower price. I mean, that's how you, that's how you move things. So I take a lot of pride in what it is. I've hired um, coaches to be a part of the team to add value for my clients. I make everyone's program, but the other coaches are involved for any questions needed. Like Kim, she's a female. So a lot of times with my female clients, they need to understand things about how they may bloat or retain at different times of the month that they might not want to talk to me about. So they, you know, I have my female coach on board where she, and she's a lupus expert, so there's a lot of things that, uh, that we add value to. You get custom tutorials that I make. Um, we do Zoom check-ins and we do multiple Zoom workouts a week with clients from all over the world. You can do them with your camera off. It's for beginners to advanced, all levels. I organize these workouts and circuits in a way that anybody at any level can do them. Consistency is the key. You want more, you have to do more. Um, do custom meal plans where we do the calories and macros for people. Um, and then there's also, so you get 21 recipes that are counted for you. All you have to do is follow the recipe in my app and click the shopping list feature. It'll tell you exactly what and how much to buy from the store and how to make it simple as shit. But we also have a private Facebook group where we do other things, you know, where we're putting in different meal ideas, like how I eat is pretty simple. So we'll put the recipes in there for that, keep it simple, and then use these other recipes I give you when you want to eat something different, all this other type of stuff. And it's always growing in what it is. And then I have uh, the coffee brand, which is uh, the best coffee I've ever had in my life. So me and my wife were super picky when this uh, our partner reached out to us and he was like, hey, man, you know, him and his family have been a roaster for decades. And he's like, how would you like to come out with your own coffee brand? Like, I don't know, man. I drink Starbucks and I'm picky about the shit that I buy because I don't like the heartburn or acidic stuff, you know? He's like, let me mail you some stuff. He overnighted me a box of freshly roasted beans. We tried every blend that he had. Delicious. We got with him, made up um, some mixtures, did our own stuff, and, and now we have that. So every order that comes in is freshly roasted to order. And then ship to your house in a couple of days and you can subscribe to keep it where it comes every month. And I sell it in pounds. This way you can get enough for a whole month. 
you know? And with that being said, it goes hand in hand with my program, which is only a hundred. My program's 150 a month, my one-on-one coaching, which breaks down to $5 a day, right? So I got my coffee that I came out with that if you buy my coffee and make your own coffee at home, now you save $5 a day that you're spending at Starbucks and you can afford your program. There's no fucking excuses at all, you know? There you go. (laughs) And then, uh, I came out with my own supplements um, with just the simple stuff that I think is important, protein and multivitamins. That's it. Because that's the only two things that I think you should 100% be supplementing every day to add more. Right? So I came out with our own supplement. All that stuff's in my website. Beautiful. All right. Well, then I've got one more question before I go to some closing questions. You led us through, you know, your kind of fragmented upbringing as far as the, the parents that were there and, and, and uh, you know, or not there, obviously, in one case. So you didn't have this this perfect kind of uh, example of what a, a mother and a father should be present in a, in a child's life. How did that impact you becoming a father and raising your own children? You know, what, what were you able how were you able to fill the gaps in some of the areas that you hadn't had personally? So anything negative in every aspect of my life that has happened, I have used it as a tool to build who I am and who I want to be, right? So there's never a woe is me bullshit or, um, or feed off. It's, it's everything that has happened is an example of either what I want or don't want, right? So I knew as a kid from the families around me, my neighbors, all this shit, what I wanted and didn't want. And through my own experiences, what I wanted to provide my kids, right? So ever since I was young, I knew I wanted to build my own family that was set around my morals and values and what I think it should look like. We all want that, right? What it should look like. But I used all those things that have happened to me as to what, how, what, and what I can do to create what I want. Right. So I know for my kids and maybe that wasn't the best for them, you know, but that's what I thought was the best, right. Family dinners and uh, dinner at the table every night, all these things that I thought are the way things should be. So every experience good and bad I've used to make who I am in a positive way. You know what I mean? So it's always, And I always had that state of mind. Um, My dad dying, um, playing Russian roulette, being reckless and using and just not giving a fuck. So when I took custody of my kids, I was never going to be that. That wasn't okay. They're going to know that they matter to me more than I matter to me. And so every decision that I make will be a reflection of the consideration I have for them. Right. So that's that's what's going to happen there Um, with my wife, the respect I have, you know, for my mom and my sister who were huge in my life. The the family I had, my the females around me, um, I'm going to show my wife in the way that I think things should be. I'm going to treat her that way. I'm going to build what I can, you know, and if that doesn't work, get divorced and try it again. You know, what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) I've done that, too. (laughs) <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, then I want to throw some quick closing questions at you, if that's okay. Yeah. 
All right. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Tony Robbins, um, Awaken the Giant Within, I think it's called. And then Marcus Aubrey, uh, I think it's called Own the Day. Those two, those powerful ass books. I read Tony Robbins' book. That was I've talked about it before. It came by in a juvenile hall library cart. And that's the first book Tony Robbins I grabbed when I was a kid, and I, I became obsessed with the mental fortitude and his uh, whole mindset and doing more and just fucking do it. Yeah. Did you ever watch the documentary they made of him? It was on Netflix, I think, three, four years ago. I did watch it. Yeah, interesting backstory. Back yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of that, that's that's obviously one of the documentaries. Any other documentaries and or movies that you love? I'm a simple I'm a simple guy when it comes to movies, man. Gladiator, Tombstone, and uh, uh, what's that Denzel Washington movie? Man on Fire. Watch Great those film. three. That yeah, those are all three things. What a man should be, my opinion. Fantastic. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I would say Mark Munoz. He's our union president. He's passionate about what it is. He's uh, deep and involved in everything going on in Washington, D.C. Um, and he's a stand up guy and he actually comes from a similar background as me. And he's a chief now on the um excuse me, on the forest, the Angeles forest. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. sounds like an amazing guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know if he'd be into it, but Jason Mitchell, man, he's, um, the influence that he's created on, I would go as far as to say a few hundred firefighters over his career is pretty powerful, but Beautiful. he's not really into sleep. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the invitations there, if he's up for it. All right. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Run. That's what I have to do. You know, um, that and uh, if I can just get away with my wife and, and, and really just relax and we don't date very, we don't go on dates very often. We don't. And when I do, that is the biggest uh, just relaxation, the wine, you know, decompression that I have. It, it, uh, it's powerful and we all need to find that, you know. So we got these things uh, around here called the Sycamore Hot Springs. They're uh, mineral springs where you go to the hot tubs out in the mountains. We'll go do that. Just kind of shut, shut the world out for a minute, you know, and just check out. Brilliant. It sounds a lot more fun than a TGI Fridays. <laughs> Fuck yeah. It is. Yeah, I'm not really into that anymore, man. I uh, In my teens and 20s, I spent so much of my time just the party lifestyle that it is what it is. You know, when I was 31 is when I decided to stop partying. And that was because my kids were becoming teenagers and I was just over it. I made a couple of slip ups here and there. We all do, but for the most part, became committed to something else. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm on yet another no alcohol straight, and it's. I hope this one sticks because it's, it's not. I've never binge drink 
per se, but it's something that I've always used to quote unquote unwind, even though it doesn't. But, uh, you know, the, the kind of mindset I've got these days is I've never woken up wishing I had a drink before, but I've woken up many times wishing I hadn't had a drink before. So trying wow. to kind of infuse that into, you know, because I'm almost 50 now. So you're kind of on a reclaim your health journey as you start cresting the, you know, the middle point of your life and alcohol, let's be honest, is, is a toxin and it's, it's negative. So if I'm going to fix my aches and pains and my brain fog and all the, all the shit that comes with 14 years in the fire service, then, uh, you know, I've got to, I got to do things as cleanly as I can. So alcohol is out for now. Yeah, there you go. Um, and I'm not in sobriety or recovery, but I don't, I don't drink really. Like I almost had a couple shots on uh, new year's because it was just kind of like everybody was doing it and it seemed like a cool time to have one. And then I decided not to because I was going to get up at 6am and work out. So I was like, ah, I don't like the way it, I just don't like the, the way it makes me feel now it, it gets in my way yeah you know I, that's yeah so if i just look at it like that it's anything that's in the way of my goals is a problem so 100 percent. all right well then you mentioned about the website where can people find you on social media everything is wild fit life 805 so on instagram tiktok facebook is justin mahaffey you can follow on there um youtube so if you're just looking for some follow alongs, that's where I really designed. I, I'm starting to put a couple new things, but I haven't in a while. But these follow alongs are designed for people who are busy. They're the 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minute workouts that you can get in anywhere. It's, um, it goes from 100 push ups in five minutes up to 1,000 in an hour. Um, that's on the YouTube, Wild Fit Life 805. I try to add stuff that takes away the excuse for anybody. You know, I have these uh, challenges that I put on. This one is for my clients, but like right now we're doing, um, can you see that? Maybe it's 30 and 30. So if anybody's interested in doing stuff like that, like the minimum stuff is uh, no less than one mile walk, jog or run, uh, a Wild Fit Life YouTube follow along or a 30 minute workout. And it's just a way to get started on your discipline. It's 30 days nonstop. You check off the box and tag me. Uh, little things like that. But, you know, that's it. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, uh, it, it's an honor to be on your show. Um, maybe one day we could talk again. I, I had a good time being here with you. I appreciate you letting me plug my stuff. Um, you know, if you guys in the fire world, go grab some coffee, man. You'd be surprised. Um, the apparel... The coffee and the supplements are really slow going. It's hard to get. That. I'm not a good. Mar I'm not a good marketing. I'm just like, hey, this shit's good. Grab it, you know. So um, I got. I got to work on that. But you guys in the fire world, go grab some uh, Wild Fit Life coffee and 805 Smooth Brew is the way to go. Yeah.